0: Welcome to Happy Millionaire, a show about how to make profit with a positive impact and stay happy along the way. All right, so really excited on this episode. We've got Fred Destin here. So, Fred was a partner at Atlas Ventures, he was at Excel and he's now set up Stride. Um, he's probably got one of the best track records in Europe in investing. So he's invested in Deliveroo, Zoopla, also PillPack, also Kazoo, and also my third company, Screenloop. So I've got to know Fred through the journey. And, you know, he's one of the most exciting characters. He's a big, big personality, but really, really deep. So I've been really hoping to get him on the podcast. And we finally got something locked in. and really excited. Where I want to start, Fred, is you've set up Stride, right? Stride is already one of the best seed funds in Europe. Like people have I've only got good things to say about you guys. Like what made you set it up? Because there's obviously certain things you've seen that weren't working at other funds, right? So that's where I want to start. Like, why did you set up Stride?
1: Well, you know, part of it is it's a vanity project. Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> Tells you he's very honest. <laughs> <laughs> <Straight in.
2: laughs>
0: no, but
1: I mean, people, people who know me have told me for the past 15 years, will not you start your own thing? Like how much joy is there in designing your own brand? Think yeah. about your own positioning, think about your own language and being able to do everything from the ground up in a way that reflects you. And I think you'll know that you're a founder, you're a founder. And I think there's a quite a deep joy in that, which is very different from running someone else's shop. Yeah. And you're when you run Excel, OK, it's a beautiful firm, it's a very well-established fund, but you're oiling the wheels that were created by two very talented gentlemen 30 years ago, Whereas here, you know, when I started with Harry Stebbings, it's the two of us and a laptop. And in fact, we didn't even have laptops. We went for our first fundraising meetings. And we landed in Palo Alto. And of course, you have to add a bit of legend. So we went to the Palo Alto Apple store, bought two huge, the biggest power books we can get our hands on, (laughs) and went to work on the first deck, which we prepped overnight for our first meeting. It's just so much fun, right? To kind of go through these somewhat heroic moments, and it's really part of the founding journey. And so that in itself was kind of a reward, right? What did you enjoy most on the branding? Is it the name? Because I don't know if you've
0: been to his website, but he talks about the chaos and what bit did you enjoy most on the branding?
1: I've thought about this thriving on chaos as a concept for a long time. It's been my tagline for like 15 years. And I think part of it is how do we humans thrive in environments of chaos because the world is moving so fast. And, you know, we weren't designed for that, right? We were designed for like chilling out by the lake, and on occasion going to like hunt a mammoth. mammoth. <laughs> Rupi likes to forest. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so we were designed for this homeostatic state, and on occasion you'd kind of have a fight or flight moment, and then you'd go back to chilling by the lake. And instead we're constantly being challenged and being uh, you're attacked by all sorts of external influences. So I'm like, okay, so thriving on chaos is interesting as a concept. Startups thrive on chaos. The reason why we beat incumbents is because we're highly adaptable. And I was like, okay, what would you design a venture firm that would thrive on chaos? What would that look like? And the thing is like, okay, so can we do away with all the processes? Can we reinvent the way we interact with founders? To what extent? How do we power decision making on the fly? You know, how do we espouse the way founders work and move with the kind of same speed and ethos and approach? And that's sort of where I started. I also you know, I love my job, I don't love my industry. There's a bit of the punk in me, so I'm like, oh, can we be like the punk VC? Can we be the anti-VC VC, you know? And of course, that in itself is not that useful because are we doing something that is meaningful for founders? But I definitely started with this, okay, how many rules can we break here? Can we go out to market and say, nothing about us is about control. We're all about trust. And then can you actually mean it? Can it yeah. like mean something in the day-to-day? Because all the VCs in the world say, oh, I'm a value-added VC. I mean, it's like past the bucket, you know, like everybody yeah, says the same yeah, yeah. thing. But it's like, okay, but if you're trying to ground yourself in trust with founders and you know that everything's chaotic, so we don't have the data, we do, you know, everything's going to evolve in real time. And then all you're trying to be is like, can I be the best fabric to help a founder build a company? And that's the kind of thing I was thinking of when I started Stride. I've known about Fred, but we've never actually fully engaged properly until probably
0: my third company, Screen Loop. And um, we spoke on a Zoom, and there's a clear connection between what we were doing and as humans, like we were deeply connected. And then literally that next Monday, we met the Stride team. The whole team were there. All of them literally like have their hearts on their sleeves. Everyone speaks only from the heart. There was no like, there's no bullshit words. So honestly, in that meeting, it was just all like heart. And it was just all good content and like everyone was up to speed where we were like i normally turn up to vc meetings and everyone's like some people are up to speed some aren't but like everyone was up to speed and then literally we met everyone on monday then on tuesday we met that like went deeper and then by wednesday we had a term sheet oh shit it's like literally was the smoothest process i've seen and also the offer that they gave they don't have any preferences i don't know if you do that for everyone but for us Like that's a huge deal for founders. So what he's basically, so pretty much every single other term sheet I've had has got preferences, right? So that means if, you know, if we don't make X amount of money for the investor, they are guaranteed their investment amount, right? On Fred's term sheet and strides, like there was no preferences. He's got the same shares as me, same class. Mm. That is super rare. And so
2: everything he's saying, I'm like, it is true. Um, But how does that make, business sense to, you know, because other VCs will want to put that in straight away because they want to take their money out and they have a almost like a a fiduciary responsibility to their their funders. How do you sort of... You negotiate with... Yeah, how do you you do that? Yeah. Yeah.
1: So this is one of those where if you think about a fund, say there are 25 projects that we will back per fund and we know that say five of them are meaningful contributors and two of them are going to be very meaningful contributors. The reason why you put these protective terms in there is all on the downside, right? It's designed in case the company doesn't get sold for that much and people are trying to take their cash out. Yeah. And the whole idea would be, hey, I gave you $10 million. You know, you all you had was IP and, a, you know, your own personality. You know, that's my protection to make sure you don't sell the company the next day for $5 million and get half my money yeah. back whilst yeah. you're getting an exit. That's why people do it. It's kind of logical. But whoever made money on these downside protection terms, it's not what it's about. What it's about is hiring founders to make the right decisions to run faster and to build bigger businesses. So if you look at it to the scale of a portfolio, it's like it makes absolutely no difference. What it does do is it creates all these bad will with founders where you're like, damn, we're not aligned They've got this kind of protective provision in there that they can take their money out, and I might toil away for years just to pay back that preference. So I'm like, what are we trying to do here? You know, so this is back to disalignment and trust thing. It was like, do I really think founders are not trying to build the best possible companies? especially when they take venture money, right? Do I think they're not ambitious? Of course they are. So it's like, why would I go bother with that? And sort of set, you know, it's like your very first action together is to sign the contract and the contract's already misaligning you. Yeah, was mm-hmm. like, okay. So my fiduciary is to make a lot of money for, for my investors all right, I'll do that. But, you know, I don't, mm. don't need a liquidation preference yeah. in my term sheet to kind of make that happen. Mm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense,
2: the way you describe it. And I guess it lends to the next question of how do you choose your founders? How do you choose those companies? Because from what Jay's just described, it's about energy, it's about trust, but you must have sort of felt your way along your journey through through VC.
1: Yeah, so, you know, there's an endless debate on people versus idea, The reason why this debate cannot be solved is because in reality, it's kind of both. So people always try and say, well, uh, I over-index on team. (laughs) Well, no one knows. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Or maybe the corollary of the, oh, you mean you don't fund shit teams? (laughs) That is (laughs) a (laughs) surprise, right? (laughs) Um, So in reality, the answer is all of it. And if you're sitting with a great founder and you're talking through a business problem and you're trying to... Together kind of try and figure out what the future might look like. We know companies pivot, we know they change their path, we know, you know, that the business plan is poetry at best. But the quality of the discussion and the engagement you're having around the business is the way in which you're forming your relationship. It's not just do I like you, it's also like, hey, let's talk about the company you're trying to build. And if it's a sophisticated conversation and it's engaging and it's smart and you're thinking on your feet, okay, now we're building something, right? We look at it and we have this kind of little decision making engine. And, you know, question number one is, is there a unique insight or are we attacking a problem that's fundamentally interesting enough? Like, is it big enough? Does it matter? Does it matter to the world? Like, is there a sort of level of importance to what we're trying to do that's sufficient? And ideally, do you have a unique viewpoint about the world you develop somehow? Like, do you bring something unique to the table or you're just replicating something you saw in the U.S. that's working, right? And then level two is like, okay, does it have some form of unlimited upside? I don't need to touch it today. This is a classic market size mistake a la Uber. But, you know, is there a narrative whereby this thing becomes really big and important and moves the needle? Okay, number three... Can we execute on it? Now we're switching our mindset and we're like, actually, in the next 12 months, 18 months, two years, is there an execution plan we can get behind? Again, I know the plan's going to change. That's not the point. It's like, are we having an intelligent conversation about how we're going to build it? And then we get into, can we fund it? In other words, can we talk to the capital markets around it and actually get this thing refinanced? And then what kind of risks are we taking? And it's important that I don't know what's going to work. Like, in fact... My opinion about what's going to work is not as interesting as my assessment of whether the risk we're putting in the portfolio is the right kind of risk. Mm. so with my team, I always say, your opinion's valuable it's not as valuable as the quality of your thinking mm. because you know I like the margin i don't like the margin, I like the product i don't like the product, I like the founder i don't like the yeah. founder it's like, yeah, okay, yeah. this is the battle of opinions, yeah, yeah, okay, all right, so everybody's got opinions, but what's more interesting is Are we putting the right kind of risk profile in our portfolio? Are we putting things that can move the needle? And are we backing the kind of people that are effectively, all you can check is whether people are learning organisms. Mm. Like what's the velocity by which they learn? In most conversations I have with investment, they are just like asking these pointed,
0: obvious direct questions, right? But in your your metrics, yes, exactly, (laughs) but in, the stride conversation it was a really deep conversation we were going to really extreme depths on certain topics in within the screen loop business and it was a real discussion and we got to see indirectly what our values are yeah how do we think on our feet you're asking really hard questions that we hadn't solved and we're trying to solve them live so it's a bit embarrassing when i don't actually know but like yeah we know you don't know but let's just talk about it and I'm surprised people don't do more of that. Even it's funny, even like dating, like, you know, you can ask the classic questions, but okay, let's solve a problem together. Let's pretend we have to, you know, host this party. Let's 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 try to solve it together. And like, you'll know how the other person is and you'll know, Oh my god, this person can't deal with pressure. God, this is terrible. (laughs) This is definitely not the right partner. But it's the same
1: thing with the founder thing. So in a weird way, you guys have it's like a live case study and it's genius. Totally. It is, we get into a room and we're starting to talk about the business. You know, what the other benefit is so I say no 98% of the time. So, my only interaction with a founder is going to be to sit in a room for an hour, have some kind of conversation, and then say, We're passing. I mean, that's like, <laughs> that's like my day to day MO. So, I'm like, okay, how do I make this A more entertaining for myself so I don't die <laughs> yeah. and, and be more valuable to the founder? Well, there's an easy answer to that, which is why don't we look at your business together? And I might learn something and you might learn something and let's have a real conversation and how should we structure the team? And can we rethink about your go-to-market? How do you come up with pricing? And now we're looking at things from different angles I'm not trying to tell you, oh, what are your metrics? What are you know? I'm not going through some kind of set of rules. I'm actually having an entertaining conversation yeah, yeah. with someone who's intelligent. I'm learning, they're learning. And then we're like, oh, and we come out and we're like, okay, that was a pretty good interaction. You know, I'd almost like to get to a place where... I don't make decisions anymore. I just learn, 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 and then the decision emerges out of the quality of conversations. Because you kind of know when something is backable, not backable, especially when you have a team around you because the collective knowledge is such that if you're having high quality conversations, the decision kind of comes out of the woodwork. You're not forcing yourself to like, should I do it? Should I not do it? Should I do it? Should I? It's this kind of obsessive moment where you're like, should I spend another hour with this person? And you're constantly in that mindset of like, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. And I'm like, okay, but what about learn? What about listen? What about educate yourself? And then collectively we'll come to the right decision. So that's also the mindset shift and it makes everything kind of richer mm. because now I'm with a founder. It's not like we're co-creating or anything, but you know we're having a collective discussion about how to build a business. Mm. And so they'll feel better about it. It's more interesting for me. And, oh, and, we, and we come out in a good
0: spot isn't that sometimes a bit exhausting? Cause let's use the classic VCs, a spreadsheet, tick, tick, tick. Yours is like, okay, let's get into creative state and let's um, brainstorm. So, so but I guess with certain founders, it probably works well, but sometimes or you it just, is yeah, totally yeah. exhausting, Yeah,
1: but a good kind of exhaustion okay. because you've, I had a creative moment, yeah, you have yeah. a quality engagement with another human being. So yes, frontal cortex, fully engaged. It's not like you can manage your level of energy around it necessarily, but it's rich. Mm. And, and so, yeah, I could also sit back and take notes and go <laughs> and put you in the, in the machine learning algorithm, yeah, yeah. And wait for the answer to yeah, come yeah. out. But, you know.
0: What's your life like right now? Is it, I know you're a very reflective person, right? And Like, what's your level of balance right now? Do you feel you're working too hard or do you feel you've got the right balance? How are you feeling?
1: Well, the question for me is more around where you're spending your energy. And you, I'm sure, will be highly sensitive to that, which is, I used to think energy came out of a spigot and you just turned it on and it would have infinite energy for everybody always at all times. And then over time you kind of go like, well, no. So A, I need to recharge sometimes, especially if you're trying to feed creativity. B, you do have limited amounts of energy, and then you kind of get more mindful about where you spend it. So the question is not where you work hard, is whether you are doing the things in your day-to-day where you're most impactful and in your zone of genius or power, or excellence or whatever you want to call it. So what I've worked on quite a lot is to take out all the stuff that either somebody else should do better, that didn't need to get done at all. or or whatever it was so that I can spend more time doing the things that I'm uniquely suited to do. It's like designing your operating system and then constantly refining it. Over the last six months, what are things that I did that detracted from my energy that I didn't need to do that somebody else could have done better? And then how do you like gradually take these out? Uh, By the way, hack number one is don't worry about responding to email. <laughs> like if you yeah. can achieve that and be <laughs> and be calm, like that is like the highest productivity. I know. Can't help it. when you got on the
0: phone, the First thing you're like, you know, you're going oh, yeah. back and reply. I'm just. If like, you
1: can stop giving a shit about email, you're already in a good place. But
0: it's true. Like default state number one when you pick up your phone and check your email. It's not your WhatsApp even. It's your emails. Like we're just. That's a prime example. But you're right. If you can switch that, that's quite powerful. Totally.
2: I've had to train myself doing that, actually. Yeah, yeah. Particularly, like, when you have a bit of a social media presence, you almost, like, feel obliged to give back to your community by getting back to their DMs and their messages and all that yeah. kind of stuff, even on, like, the public comments, let alone the DMs. But I've actually trained myself to just, like, be at peace with it, yeah. which is hard when, you know, you're inherently a people pleaser.
1: Mm-hmm. But, yeah, if you can hack that, that's great. My old partner, Jeff Fagnon for years he's had an auto reply going i don't check email yeah if it's important whatsapp me and i may read it and i'm like (laughs) what a legend (laughs) you're someone that probably
0: a founder would love to speak to more and more right so do you set boundaries is there certain levels of boundaries because you can get some founders like i get some they just whatsapp me all the time like on weekends everything so is any advice you can share to people on just yeah how do you Make sure that yeah you don't have those situations.
1: So I'm also a people pleaser to a certain extent, right? And you care about people. It's not like not some kind of machine. I'm like I know there's a founder at the other end of an email who's building a business. I can feel that you know, the <laughs> yeah, empathy. Yeah, <laughs> <yeah, yeah, yeah. laughs> no, but also I feel for them, right? Yeah, They're like this true. is their life's work. I mean, it's I still feel guilty every time I don't respond, like still to this day, right? But then at some point you're like. Okay, something's going to have to give. What is the one thing we don't have? Hours. You can do whatever you want. You cannot expand the number of hours you got. You can manage your energy. You can manage your nutrition. You can manage your delegation. Number of hours you can't. And then you get to this place where you're like, okay, it is physically impossible to answer more than you know, 30% of the requests for time that I get. Let's say 20% or something. So then you get to the art of no. And the art of no is now with friends. With friends of mine, I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm slammed. I cannot spend the time for coffee. And you know, I would love to see you a bit later in the year for drinks with other people, etc. But I'm not spending an hour for a coffee to advise you on your business. And some people get pissed off. Do your real friends get pissed off? Hell no. Mm. They're like, I hope you're doing okay, man. You know what can I do? And which is the same thing you do for a real friend of yours, by the way. So you know, yeah, there's a filtering there, but do the people who care about you? They know. They're like, if I if I say no to a request for help, like there's a good fucking reason, or I'll ask to clarify. I'm like, is this something I'm uniquely placed to do? Is this something that's very important to you? Because sometimes you wanna encourage people to state their needs. I mean, especially I find it especially true with women. Women don't ask for help. And then you kind of go like, all right, I'll just make sure like if this is important to you, I'll 100% do it. But almost like, you know, tell me it's important to you. Because otherwise people ask you all the fucking time. It's like, can I pick your brain? You know, I don't love want that my brain, pick. brain. <laughs> to Go pick, pick your own brain. <laughs> it's such a weird saying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that needs to be it's changed. awful. I always have this image of people. <laughs> yeah. like, no insects picking inside, inside in. your brain. Yeah, yeah.
2: You seem like quite a, like a spiritual, well grounded. Like how have you always been this way, or like have you put work into sort of like? No, not know, at
1: all. I grew up as bit of a polymath, you know, flew through uni, always had an easy time, studied everything and anything, didn't know what I wanted to do with my life, studied a career that went well. And I was like, well, I'm the guy that can't fail. (laughs) Except when you do, right? And so then I'm like, okay, divorce, my dad died, realized I didn't love my job anymore. And I mean, just everything at the same time. So 2000. 15. I didn't know it was a depression because I just peeled, but I had to fucking peel myself off the bed to go to work. Now, retrospectively, I can tell you it was pretty, pretty hard uh, depression, but being a guy who never fails, I'm like, I'm just going to power oh, yeah. through this shit. Yeah, yeah. And that was a wake up call. And it started with me trying to understand my divorce. It's like, where did my family go wrong? I have three kids, you know, I'm like a family guy. I'm just like, where did I go wrong? And then you start to learn. And when you open the door, then you open the next door, then you open the next door. And I would say that there is two levels. There's a level where you become functional. So you can do cognitive behavioral therapy. It'll make you functional. So you can go back into the world and go like, I fixed myself, I'm now functional. But if you open the next door, then you're like, okay, I don't just want to be functional. I want to deeply understand myself and the world. And that's like the red pill experience. This is where you kind of want to pierce through the veil and you're like, how do we function? What really drives us? What's really reality? What did we choose? We're on some kind of rails towards success, et cetera. Did we choose the rails? Who designed the rails? And then you get into that level of exploration and you're like, where do I come from? So society, my ancestors, all the conditioning. And then what's my journey as a child and how much of my patterns, how much am I carrying from my childhood? And then, you know, you open Pandora's box and then it's a beautiful exploration. And the thing is that journey never stops. And then it's a question of how uncomfortable you're willing to be. Like, you know, are you okay to sink to the bottom of the pool before you kick back up? Or are you gonna find the discomfort too much and you're just gonna get out of it before you've learned what you need to learn? And that journey is like an ongoing journey. And I find it in itself fascinating. If you look at the Buddhist uh, Zen masters, The first version was about not feeling pain, right? The first version of Buddhism was about distancing yourself from outcomes and from feeling pain. And, you know, and the idea was essentially to remove yourself from the vicissitudes of the world. The second turning was more interesting because suddenly they're like, okay, everything is unity. We are all part of a whole and we don't even understand to what extent we're part of the whole. Now, if we look inside ourselves, so if we go deep, 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 we will find both emptiness, so the vanity of the ego, we also find everything. So if you go deep enough inside yourself, you reconnect with the totality of the whole, and that's where you start to feel part of the universe again, and your consciousness expands out. And so that journey within is the key to going outside and to then being able to be of service to the world any second it's the classic thing or if you don't fix yourself you're not going to be able to help anybody else right or at least not that efficiently so that journey i find amazing
0: you're in such a great state because obviously you are so much more conscious about everything from the way you designed your fund to even the people you've hired so i've got to meet all those guys and even the investments you're making i can see it's all thought through from a good place right i'm noticing that In the space we're in, whether it's entrepreneurs or investors, a lot of people haven't hit that state, right? And I know it's a journey, but I can also see a lot of blockage because there is so much greed and so much pressure from LPs and so much pressure from founders. So I'm realizing that and this was part of the reason why we create this podcast, because I feel like the heart needs to come out more. And is anything, you know, and this is talking about our industry, is there do you have a theory on why the greed is more than the love and can that change? And I'm sure you've thought about this. So what, what's your latest thinking
1: on just why that's happening and what can we do to change it around? It's quite a deep societal problem, right? And it goes back to, you know, thousands of years of history, which have been built around dominating, taking the land of your neighbor. I mean, it's just the whole of human history. Masculinity, right? With a lot of, (laughs) with a lot of the Mm. masculine in there. And, Step one is you realize so how many of these constructs are real? Like, does it matter which country you're from? Mm. Countries are constructs. They're designed so you would go to the army, feel proud about your flag, and go fucking kill the guy next door if you're being asked to. Mm. And so we can also raise taxes. I mean, you know, it's like everything's a construct like that that divides humans, yeah. right? And so, okay, so you're deep into the societal problems. And as you correctly point out, the divine feminine or the feminine is being repressed. And so the things that have to do with listening, empathy, co-creation are not very present. So what can we do about this? I mean, it is a whole of society problem that, you know, of which venture is One example is probably actually not the worst, but, you know, it's kind of (laughs) certainly prone to the same kind of issues. So step number one is like, how do we bring the feminine back? And I mean, the divine feminine, as well as women, but, you know, inside men, for example, because what do we suffer from and what you're describing, greed, the need to dominate, etc they're expressions of immature masculinity, actually. The king archetype, in its most mature version, is somebody who looks after the land. The king archetype has nothing to prove. In fact, it doesn't work for himself. He works on behalf of the land and everybody on the land. So the most mature version of masculinity would be like, I'm here to look after everybody else. You know, it's the classic servant leader, etc. Mm. Okay, can we get back to that? You know, as a leader of a company, as a you know a venture capitalist, I don't know that we have that much importance, but certainly for founders, So, you know, to what extent can we power our founders to be more like that? Because, by the way, they will be better leaders. And then for the feminine side and for women in particular, you see that the type of leadership they bring, you know, is getting more recognized, but it's still not, you know, obvious for them to kind of break through, you know, the suppression of the voice, suppression of their real power, suppression of the full breadth of their personality. And so... We're all part of the system. Look, in a way, I'm also quite humble, which is if I can impact my team, my family first, my team, the founders that we back, great. Okay, so I'm having a little bit of nonlinear impact. And then, you know, that's already a start. You know, by the way, starting with myself because I'm far from perfect. So start with cleaning your own front yard and then you know a la Jordan Peterson right and then kind of concentric circles of influence beyond that I tell you what's super interesting though is so when you start showing up differently people react very differently to you and it's incredible because you kind of manifest a different way of being and more openness and more conversation and more asking questions And the nature of your interaction with everybody starts to shift. And to me, that's been the biggest realization is to see, oh, there is this rich interaction inside people. You just have to invite it in, you know. And so I think that's where the chain comes from. And then you model it with the podcast and with your venture studio. And, you know, I try and model it on a small scale with, like I said, my team first and the founders that we back And then also where we direct our capital. I wrote a formal impact thesis. It's not like we're an impact fund, but it's like in what way are we directing our capital towards things that hopefully make the world a better place and what does that sound like, look like, feel like?
2: That was the question I was going to ask you actually because you do have a tool, and I would argue it's quite a powerful tool to direct our society in terms of where you allocate capital. So how is your worldly perspective influencing those decisions?
1: Well, so I think one of the taboos you have to break is we have to go to RLPs and we're not an impact fund in the sense of I'm not trying to do climate or anything. So we are not designed as an impact fund. Okay, regardless of that, we go to RLPs and we say we will only direct capital into projects where we feel we can ethically back the people. We can espouse their mission and we view their mission as clearly having a positive contribution in the world in general. And then for us to go when we raise money and say, this is part of what we do. By the way, it should matter to you. And it's not fucking, sorry, purple p- for my language, <laughs> ESG monitoring yeah, yeah, or yeah. anything like that. Yeah, it's yeah. like, does it actually have impact? This is not about the statistics. You know, this is about, you know, are we backing people we can be proud of, projects we can be proud of? And again, one check at a time, one company at a time, you know, try and make a difference.
0: On that, do you feel... Because you're right, the LPs, the number one metric is ROI, right? Did you deliver them returns, right? So I do feel there is this, maybe it's the ESG, we have to probably use that, but maybe it needs to be a smarter way to factor in other attributes, like whether it is contributing or... Have you thought about just the way in which you model your success right now? Because yes, you can talk about your returns and yes, you've done really well on that. But are there any other metrics that I guess we can probably start looking more at to show that we're just more than ROI driven. Because that's the thing I'm trying to look at. It's like, you know, sometimes I'm foregoing an idea which might make me 2x richer, but I'm willing to do that because I know when I'm, you know, at a certain point in my life, I'm going to reflect Bango. Actually, it's not about how much money I make. It's about more than just how much money I make. And, mm-hmm. But there is no metric for that. And we're such a society where
1: we need a number. Mm. And <laughs> so there isn't one. <laughs> the short answer to that is no. I think for me, it is powerful to force ourselves to really think about the purpose mission and impact of a company by the way i also think it's important to remain humble because i used to think twitter was a net positive for the world arab spring you know citizen journalism you know self-expression and so very often even when you think technology will have a positive impact. There's nothing inherently good about technology. Like the ethical choices have to be made over and over again. So I don't have a good answer to that. I'm actually quite nervous about the measurement frameworks. I'll give you one example. Have you ever tried to define race? And race is a loaded topic, especially because mm, I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm a white man. Yeah, right? so yeah, yeah, yeah. Who, who the fuck <laughs> yeah. am I to talk about race? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But go with the exercise for two minutes. British-born Indian. British-born Pakistani. Indian, Bangladeshi, you know, the moment, and people in the U.S., they go like, Asia. Yeah, it always yeah. makes me laugh. I'm like, yeah. Asia, yeah. In, Indonesia, <laughs> yeah. Philippines, yeah. you know? Yeah. And so you you run into these issues with citizenship, country, race, mixed race, etc. cetera. And you, you kind of go like, okay, there is no way to design measurable constructs that don't somehow either force people into groups they don't belong to or pit people against each other according to groups or fall prey of measurement methods that simply don't work. And then you go like, as much as you wish you could do it, when you try to do it in practice, it's like, good luck. And so, you know, (laughs) for the measurement stuff, I'm like kind of staying away from it because I think it is a, on the edge of unsolvable issue.
2: Mm-hmm. Who's your guru or like your biggest influence over the last couple of years? Like you seem like you sort of been very resourceful about the different influences you've had to sort of
0: yeah, teach who's, you. Who's the top? Who's the uh, who's the person right now?
1: Well, so the first thing I would say is take meditation, example. Meditation belongs to everybody. Yeah. Meditation is as simple as pausing for two minutes and doing whatever methodology you want to observe your own brain. So nobody needs gurus because. Yeah self-awareness the journey towards knowing yourself etc are all things that belong to all of us and your grandma might be the wisest guru you'll ever meet yeah, yeah. so that's step one having said that i love the poet david white david white w-h-y-t-e I've okay i've never really read poetry uh-huh. and with david white basically the role of the poet is to help you look at the reality around you differently and in a deeper way Right, And David White, his obsession is how do I increase the quality of the conversation that you have with the present? And I just adore his work. He's also a great speaker because he's basically somewhere between a monk, a philosopher, a poet. He's also hilarious. I found him quite profound. To give you one example, he wrote this book called Consolations, which is about reclaiming words of the everyday language we lost the meaning of. One of them is beauty. And he writes his three pages about beauty's prose. And at the end he goes, beauty is the harvest of presence. And if you want to pinpoint the single most important sentence for me in the last few years, it is beauty is the harvest of presence. I think he's amazing. There is a guy called Jeff Foster, he's unaffiliated I <laughs> he's unaffiliated with anybody okay. he doesn't belong okay. to any school etc yeah, yeah. jeff is all about accepting all of your feelings he's like scream your anger feel your sadness you know this is he's the anti-spiritual bypassing guy because the thing that is really annoying with this whole movement are people who go like I'm in touch with myself <laughs> and I see I have compassion for the world and then all it takes is you literally you probe them with your little <laughs> finger and they'll get upset right? and <laughs> you're like mm, okay I yeah I've crying <laughs> about seven times you probably saw that I'm like yeah I know yeah, what you mean maybe there's a bit more work to do yeah. you know? <laughs> yeah. um, so that I think is really quite annoying and I think we have to watch that we don't end up with a productized version of spirituality yeah. and with a whole lot of spiritual bypassing oh I did Ayahuasca last week and look at the and I'm wearing a robe and I'm connected, you know, and you're like, yeah, you know, it's like really hard work actually. Um, and you don't want to be very humble about how much progress you think you've made. Do you know Ram Das? Do you know yeah, what means? Yeah, yeah. So Ram Das, uh, one of my favorite sayings by him is he went, you know, he went to India for 20 years and he was in the caves and the darkness and, you know, he was with Maharishi. And anyway, he comes back to Boston and he hangs out with a buddy of his for a week. And the guy at the end of the week goes, dick richard dick you're still the same asshole you were 20 years ago (laughs) (laughs) and ramdas was laughing and was like oh i'm still the neurotic person that i was the only difference is my neuroses are allowed in for tea but i don't invite them to stay the night Ah. and i was like perfect you know this the shit that we grew up with would always be with us and it's like about creating just a moment of when it's a moment of choice before your patterns take over or before your reactive self takes over. And, you know, that's kind of what we're striving for. So I think it's important to stay quite humble about this shit.
0: Thanks for listening, I hope you enjoyed that. Now, I'm gonna be real with you all, I really like to win. And winning to me right now is making a success of this show and building this community of happy millionaires. But I need your help and it'll only take you two minutes. Here's what you can do. One, if you haven't already, please hit follow wherever you're listening. Two, give it a five star review on your podcast app. Three, send this app to one person, trust me they'll thank you later. That's gonna take you 60 seconds at tops.
2: Really, really appreciate your help and we'll see you on the next one.